you know, he's been likened to Larry Murphy, I think, in, in recent times. He totally ruined this, this elderly woman's, you know, her twilight years. I mean, they were just, they were gone from her. I suppose it gives an indication into the devastation and the destruction, you know, caused by McGinley. It, it, it doesn't just necessarily blow over the physical damage within a couple of days or weeks. It's, it's something that's long-lasting. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's Ireland's most notorious rapist, whose first attack sparked the controversial sea case, which saw the state pitched in a legal battle against the parents of his 13-year-old victim, who the courts ruled could travel to the UK for an abortion. Such was the suicide risk. Brute, Simon McGinley went on to carry out another horrendous sexual assault on an elderly woman in her own home and has spent most of the past two decades in prison. But this month he was released and journalist Eamon Dillon was there to witness his freedom. Today, I'm talking to Eamon about McGinley, about his crimes and about the danger he still poses to women. This is Crime World, a podcast from Sunday World. Eamon, what sort of prisoners are in Arbor Hill and, you know, what's it like when they are released? You were there last week when McGinley got out. Arbor Hill is, I suppose, it's it's one of these old um, British Empire type jails. Um, it's left over from way back when. It's actually quite small compared to, say, the likes of Wheatfield or the Midlands prison. Um, it, it, I think it'd be easily less than 200 inmates in it. And it's mostly, it's, it's, it's a lot of lifers, people serving time for um, some pretty serious crimes, but who are otherwise very quiet living um, and, and, you know, don't really cause any trouble. So it's kind of, it's the, it's the people who are, are behaving themselves on, behind bars who tend to get housed there. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, while it's a medium security prison, the same as the Midlands or Wheatfield, there'd probably be a little bit more opportunity for doing courses, uh, for getting outside to a little bit, little bit of guarding in front of the prison, which in the past we've seen the likes of Frank McCann, who's serving time for killing his wife and children in an arson attack. We've seen him do that there. Um, so it, it's it's a, a little bit of an unusual prison in that regard. Um, like there was the famous release of Larry Murphy several years ago when he came out that blue gate, the old archway, wearing his baseball cap um, to, the, to the, the waiting media. And, and that's where they come out still. And that's where Simon McGinley walked out of last Wednesday. And would he have had any inkling that maybe you might have been there to greet him? Or, you know, was he, did he disguise himself or were you able to see his face? Yeah, well, normally when we do these... Um, prisoner releases for the Sunday world, we're there on our own. Um, I don't think, you know, as many media really have the time or the interest in in paying as much attention to it as we do. Um, but obviously McGinley, as you say in your introduction, one of the most notorious rapists in the country, you know, I mean, he's been, you know, he's been likened to Larry Murphy, I think, in, 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 in some pieces in, in recent times. There was always going to be other media there. And really, you, you couldn't miss the fact that we were sitting outside it's like the the little road up there behind Collins's barracks, the museum there, like it, nobody parks in it. So, I mean, if this, the only people who park there are people going into the prison, either as as visitors or 
you know, professionals going in to work there for whatever reason. So if all of a sudden there's an extra five or six cars there, it's pretty obvious to the staff. Now, whether they're obliged to tell him or not, I don't know. But he certainly came out well prepared for us. He was more than well wrapped up. He had his face covered. He was wearing a hood. He had a cap on. I mean, you couldn't even see you couldn't even see his eyes. And he uh, there was a taxi call from which you know reversed in a little bit up towards that blue gate in you know past the initial gate off the footpath. Now it's fairly short, so you know I stood at the the railings. Just just you know didn't go onto prison property. Just stood at the railings. You know, said, Mr. McGinley, you know, have you anything to say? You know, uh, I think one of the other journalists asked him, you know, have you an apology if you're a victim? But he just ignored us. He got into the car. The car went to, to turn right, come out of the prison. I gave it a little tap in the window, see if he'd change his mind and maybe wind down the window and, and say something. But no, he drove away and that was it. So like, the speculation is now that he's pretty much, you know, he's keeping his head down. I don't think he's particularly popular among, you know, uh, you know, members of the, of, of the community. So like, but in fairness, his family have stood beside him. Um, you know, they, like he, he is, he's going to be back with his family, who, many of whom are originally from Dundalk. He was, he was living in Monaghan when he was, you know, sentenced in, in, in 2009 for the, the, the most recent sentence that he, that he served. So it, it looks like, you know, he'll still have the support of some of his family anyway. So, I mean, it's not like he's necessarily going to be homeless. So a couple of things. Firstly, when a prisoner is collected in a taxi, clearly nobody else is willing to show up and give them a lift. Um, and secondly, when you say family, is he has he a wife, has he kids and that kind of thing? Or is it are you talking about his larger, wider family? No, no, he's he's married with kids. Um, um, and it, it, certainly his wife would have would have been at the the, the the trial in 2009 for the the rape of the elderly woman, she's an 85 year old woman that he raped, um, and his mother was there if I remember correctly, and giving out to some of the media saying my son's not a beast. So I mean, like you, you, you know, there, there's um, there is that support there for him, you know. I guess uh, like his his senior counsel, you know, was making the argument uh, when he was being sentenced that look, the, the, this particular attack uh, happened when he was, you know wildly drunk and that the same happened the last time when he attacked the 13 year old girl that sparked the sea case again he was very drunk so once he stays off the drink he's he's not a danger to the community and this was this was kind of put forward in mitigation uh at, at the time so you know there, there there is some chink of light i suppose can be argued um from from their point of view i don't think it's a view that's going to be widely shared at this stage i mean i think a lot of people are potentially nervous i mean you know i mean the first time he was in prison he did all the the kind of the the sexual offenders courses i mean there's no doubt he's aware of of the effect his you know his offending can have on people um and whether or not he's gonna not do it again remains to be seen it doesn't look promising considering the last time and the height of the controversy he was involved in that he pretty much did it again and and he got all the benefits of suspended sentence you know a portion of his 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 uh, sentences being being suspended both times uh, and both times like he was released under the, the supervision of the probation services. I mean, he's he's about he's 12 years to be under supervision this time around. But I mean, that's a matter of, you know, it's not like there's a probation officer following around or it's not like they're, they're asked to wear um, electronic bracelets, which sex offenders are in many countries, something that we, we've kind of highlighted as well. I mean, you know, it would be quite easy to see if he's if he's out um, late at night It'd be quite easy to find out, you know, if he's been 
you know, sitting in a pub. I mean, all these things would can be done with an electronic tag um, at, a, at a relatively small cost. And it beats me why we haven't ever got around to that. I'm going off the tangent a bit, but I, I just, you know, so I mean, it, it's going to be a matter of if, if the guards run into him and find him doing something he shouldn't be doing or getting drunk again, you know, it's quite possible then, you know, he can face further charges. But, you know... I mean, once he once he registers his address with the guards, I mean that's it. He's he's free to come and go. He's free to leave the country. So I mean, there's, oh, there's no real great monitoring of these guys. Does he even does he have to sign on every week or anything like that? I mean, he is supposed to be still in prison. We've suspended his sentence, or the state have to allow him out um, back into society. He just gives an address basically and gives a new one if he moves. Yeah, and and it's you know he has a week to do it. So I mean, each time he moves address, he has a week before he has to tell anyone where he's going, um, and 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 that's it. You know, it's it's not like he he wasn't sentenced to life. It's not like he's out on license, where he has to kind of you know behave himself or face the sentence being reactivated. Now, obviously, that there is uh, I think there is an element of suspended sentence in this case. So obviously, if he got into some kind of issue that you know it would be up to the up to the authorities then up to the the dpp to go back to court and say we want to activate the last 18 months and he go back into his final 18 months but i don't think it's a, it's a it's a huge amount like he was originally sentenced to 21 years and he got two taken off on appeal and then there was a suspended element uh, but it's not it, it wasn't particularly long it was it was a, it was a short part of it was suspended i mean that's that's the usual I think that judges sometimes put that in as very much as they call it, like a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, that these guys will behave themselves in prison, that there's a, you know, a possibility that if, if, if they, if they can, you know, if they're disruptive or cause a lot of trouble, that they can go to court and say, look, we, we want to activate this suspended sentence because he's not behaving like he's supposed to, even though he's in prison. So, I mean, theoretically it can be activated then. So it's a way of kind of, uh, of, I, I suppose, Giving them a little bit of hope and uh, and kind of give them a chance to rehabilitate themselves. Although you can argue in, in McGinley's place, he already spurned his chance to rehabilitate himself the first time round. I mean, there were horrific cases. Um, both rapes were just yeah. horrific. Well, let's start with that C case and um, when that happened. Now, was McGinley living in Dublin at that point? Yeah, he, he was living in, in in North County Dublin, um, and he like his family would have known the family of. The thirteen-year-old girl he attacked. Um, she would have done some babysitting for them. I mean, they lived on a campsite in, in pretty poor conditions. I mean, it, you know, it, it, you know, it, it was a poor background that this this young girl w- was living in. Uh, and she had been babysitting for them, and he drove after her in the van, insisted on giving her a lift home, got her into the van, punched her, raped her, um, and then when he dropped her back home. Back to where she was living, he put a knife to her throat and told her she told anyone she, he'd, he'd kill her. Um, now I think, like in, in the kind of the the, the stories I've been published since, um, it kind of got out that something had happened. Um, you know, the, I think social services got involved. The, the girl was put into a care home, and it was then when she was basically suffering morning sickness, it was discovered she was actually pregnant when a, a GP had her do a test, um, and and. You know, she as a result of that, um, she became depressed, suicidal, and the, the the social services, you know, they applied. They wanted to bring her to the UK for an abortion. They felt this is the best way forward, um, and that was challenged by her parents, who had the support of of pro life movements at the time. And <clears throat> I suppose um, coming on the coming on the heels of the X case in I think ninety two, it was another case of of 
kind of uh, the judicial system kind of picking up the slack that the legislature had left behind and that we didn't particularly have any laws. So we had this rigmarole, like, you know, this horrific emotional roller coaster for the, I imagine for the young, you know, the young woman, the young girl at the time. I and mean, she, she did give interviews like it subsequently and she spoke about her own confusion, didn't necessarily know what was going on. Um, and, and in those interviews, she's also spoken about her regret at having an abortion and that she, you know, she had thought that, um, you know, her baby was going to be given up for adoption. And that, that's the way that's the way she's put it. But it, it just I suppose it gives an indication into the into, into the, the, you know, the devastation and the destruction, you know, caused by, you know, McGinley and, and rapists like him who carry out these crimes that it, it doesn't just necessarily blow over the physical damage within a couple of days or weeks. It's it's something that's long lasting. Mm. And it was really when that the state brought the case to the courts looking for permission to allow this girl go for the abortion that it all blew up and came into the public agenda. Um, <clears throat> what year was it? Was it 97? Yes. Yeah. No, sorry. It was. Yeah, it was, it was ni- 1997 um, when that happened. Because I recall actually going out to where her family were living and it's been stated in court and certainly in the reporting around it that they were in very poor conditions. Now, I was a young journalist and maybe a little bit green, but I have to say, I mean, I think to now I've never seen conditions as bad in this country. Um, I remember being out on the site where they were living and I think speaking at the time to her her father, um, he was surrounded with members at that point of some of those pro-life movements who were kind of circling him and his wife um, to help them take the case against the state to stop this abortion. It had become political, really. But sitting in the family caravan, I remember looking down at my feet and a puddle had, you know, had formed around. The the, the caravan was so damp, like that it was actually sodden. The floor of it was sodden. It was so sparsely furnished. Um, And I just, this puddle had formed around my feet from where they were leaning. And it was a freezing cold, must have been wintertime or something. But there was a tent out the back of this caravan. And I think that's where the ki- the kids were, were sleeping. There was a big, large family of kids. So it's not surprising that social services were involved there in the first place. But um, I also remember at the time some reporting that the girl, when she when the foster mother had brought her for this pregnancy test and the doctor had found out she was pregnant, she didn't even know really what that was. She was only a child. She didn't really know what it meant. I think they had to explain to her that, you know, being pregnant meant you were going to have a baby. That's how innocent she was at the time. So it was horrific. So w- McGinley was arrested for that. Yes, um, and he, he was charged. Um, and, you know, that's, I suppose, <clears throat> he, he, I think it was a 12-year sentence and he got four years suspended. So, like, he would have served about whatever it was, about six years. For, for that case, like, you know, for, for that particular rape, which was violent. And again, you know, something he denied. So he went off to jail at that point and was his first release from that original sentence. Do you recall being at Arbor Hill or was he in Arbor Hill or his was his release at that point a kind of a, a new story? No, it, it wasn't. No, it, it wasn't that big a deal um, the first time. Uh, for sim- Simply, it, it, he was a, a one-time rapist at that point. Um, the fact that he struck again, I suppose, put him in, you know, to another level and, and the kind of the depravity of the second attack kind of, you know, kind of showed, 
you know, and if it's possible, an even darker side or an even you know nastier side to him. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, there was a case of um, where he pushed, he knocked on a door on a an eighty five year old woman's cottage in in Monaghan town, and walked past her. Uh, he was going to, you know, he was going to burgle the house. And he stayed there. He stayed there. He stayed there the night. He raped her repeatedly. He put his hand over her mouth when she cried out. Um, and and he, he again, he denied it. Um, they, they, they had him on the DNA on her electric blanket, on her pajamas. They had his fingerprints in, in the bathroom, in the kitchen. And But, you know, it, it was a nine-day trial. And she was actually, she gave a statement in the district court um, and her daughter, who gave a victim impact statement, said that the attack had accelerated her dementia. She was never she was never called as a witness in the central Com- criminal court case, but her her statement that she had given to the to the district court was allowed. Um, and and her, like her, her her daughter had you know she also had kind of she she spoke about how her, her just her mother had went downhill very much after that she had she had you know previously lived independently and now she couldn't she couldn't really be on her own. Um, you know things that used to give her pleasure in life. You know, no longer did. She was she was terrified of even if a man walked past her window. You know, it's the, it would leave her completely spooked. So I mean, it, like he, he totally ruins this this elderly woman's you know her twilight years. I mean, they were just they were gone from her. Um, you know, basically nothing left. And <clears throat> he got his twenty one years. He got two taken off, and and he's out. I mean, you know, th- this happened in two thousand and eight. It's now um, September twenty. Uh, 2022 and he he's out and about so I mean he's served 13 years and I mean you can totally understand I mean the terror that elderly woman must have felt and exactly how her independence would have been gone from that moment um what a depraved human being to go in and do that to an elderly woman in her own house and to spend the night repeatedly raping her in such a way. He was only 34, I think, at the time. Yeah, like he's, he's under 50. He's 48, 49. So, I mean, he's got plenty of years left in him. And I, I guess that's the worry. Um, and, you know, the picture that we have of him coming out last Wednesday, he's wrapped up. You can't see anything. You can even barely see his body shape because he's wearing a kind of big jacket and loose tracksuit bottoms. Um, you know, and he, he, you know, with the hood and the hat, like you, you know, there was no sense of 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 getting an idea of his body shape or anything like that. So the picture that we have published as well, that's you know, that you'll if you Google his name, you'll find it's from two thousand and eight. So he's going to look, he's going to look a bit different, probably not that much, but at the same time, you know, if, if he's not going, he's quite distinctive looking guy, actually, isn't he? Well, I think I think if you if you're aware of him, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna you, you probably would recognize him. I think even from the 2000, 2008 picture. But at the same time, you know, if he's knocking on doors now, looking to do landscape work or something like that, or who knows what, I mean, people aren't necessarily going to recognize him or put two and two together. I mean, just despite what we think, not every single member of the public reads the Sunday World or goes online to to look at our stuff and and, and may not be aware that there's you know, these dangerous sex offenders knocking around. I mean, like since August, like like he's the fourth sex offender that we've highlighted in the Sunday world who've, who's been released since the 17th of August. <clears throat> and that's just the four that we've highlighted. There are others as well who've been, who've been um, released. Um, and you, you have, a, you know, you have a, a, you know, people who raped their, their partner's daughters, uh, a man who raped a, a homeless woman in a tent, you know, um, and you know, two of them were serial offenders. You know, these are guys who've who've done it before. 
and you know are likely going to do it again. And then you have, you know, a Premier League sex offender like Simon McGinley then coming out to top it all off after a month of these these releases. And and in this country, we still we're dithering about how we monitor this, like how we you know, I mean, why we can't get electronic uh, monitoring brace, bracelets working in this country is beyond me. I mean. Like it's it's done. It's it's easily done. It it costs anything between ten and twenty five euro a day, and, and why they can't do it is, you know, the the excuses that that, that I've heard. You know, uh, uh, it, it, we tried to do our own system uh, <clears throat> instead of buying existing technology. We're trying to reinvent the wheel, and it, it, to me, it doesn't make sense. And and it's something that, you know, that needs to be done. I mean, it's in new legislation. Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice, has has talked about it and, and put the possibility there. But there seems to be no appetite for it. And I can't understand why. So it's a political thing, Helen McEntee, or it has to be brought to the Oireachtas and passed there and then brought into legislation, which would probably take a couple of years anyway. But nonetheless, why is there no appetite? Is there no politician out there who's who believes or who has been lobbied enough by victims of this kind of crime to push this through? Obviously not. It's not seen as a vote-winning topic. I mean, the legislation as it exists does allow for it. I mean, they, we have done pilot cases, but, you know, it, it just hasn't happened. Obviously, there's some kind of uh, resistance or pushback to it from, you know, the probation service, presumably, or people who are going to be tasked with it. I know that, like, I've seen it work in operation in the UK, but, I mean, that was done then by a private security company, one of the big, you know, I forget who it was, somebody like G4S or one of these major security firms, you know, that have thousands and thousands of of, of employees around the country. Um, I know there's a French company that does a, sim- a similar thing as well. Um, they do it very efficiently. And, I mean, and and it's not about it's not about trying to find where somebody is every second of the day. It's about it's about making sure they live up to the terms of their release, so that they'll know if they're at home uh, between nine and ten at night. Um, they'll know if somebody has tried to interfere with the bracelet, like even if even if they half tear it or they they can tell it leaves it leaves little telltale signs if you grip it and all this kind of you know it, it's and then this is then brought by the guards or whoever to a judge to say look, there's been attempts to circumvent this. Um, like, you know, it, 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 they were outside, <clears throat> they were, you know, they've been hanging around outside a school or they've been or they've been sitting in a pub. And here's the evidence, like, you know, on, on, on 10 different occasions, they were in a, a shopping center, even though they they've been specifically told not to go there. And, and they were able to put this then in front of a judge. So it leaves an evidence trail. So it's not a matter of necessarily, you know, prying into someone's every single moment of their private life. But it's about leaving an, a trail of evidence about their behavior and about their patterns. And, and that's the way it works. And even, I'm, I suppose, from a reactionary point of view, if there has been a sexual crime in a particular area, it would be easy to look at those GPS signals and see if any of them were in the, the you know, in around the crime scene at the time of an offence. I mean, that would that be one way of looking at it. I mean, you, you probably are crossing into the, into the privacy issues there. But I mean, you, look, I mean, you can argue that, you know, People with you know serious sex offences do they have a right to privacy? Um, I mean, the, the you know the right of the the public to be protected and to live in safety you know has to be paramount. I w- I would think, um, but I mean I would agree you, completely. You, but you, I, in a way, you don't even need to do that. I mean, if 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 a serious sexual crime happens uh, in an area, I would imagine the first thing that you know, the guards do now is check their, their sex offenders register and go knocking on all those doors straight away to say, right, where were you last night? And can you prove it? And then give me your phone and see where you've been. 
So, I mean, in, in a way, I, I, you know, that wouldn't necessarily add to it, but I, I, I do think that it, a lot of the time, like even say when they use it for lesser criminals, like it was wide, wide, there's widespread use of it in the UK and in France. And so if you have people say who get into trouble for joyriding and a judge says, right, you're a young kid, you're 18, 19, there's no point in sending you to prison, but you'll just come out an even more hardened criminal and all the rest. So you're going to wear a bracelet. You're not allowed, you're allowed to go to work. You can get up, you can leave the house at 8 a.m. and you have to be home at 7 p.m. And they're, sometimes they're absolutely delighted because then when their mates come calling saying, come on, we're going to go out, nick a car, do have a bit of crack, they'll say, I can't go. I'm wearing the bracelet. I'll be back inside in prison. So off you go, lads. Have a good night and leave me out of it. And it gives them an out. And, and, and that's, mm. that's been known to be effective as well. You know, even if you have, you know, God love him, you know, a, a poor sex offender who only, you know, uh, I'm being sarcastic here just in case anyone that has okay. missed we up on it. But like if, if somebody, you know, has a drink problem and when they're, they're drunk, they turn into a, a sex offender. Maybe it's a good thing then that they have their, their bracelet on knowing that, well, if they go out and they get drunk, they're going to get caught and be back inside. So, you know, they'll be prosecuted again for breach of their breach of their, their, their conditions. So I mean that that's 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 the theory, and I mean, and it does seem to work. And like I said, like the political will doesn't seem to be there to do it. I'm not, I'm not really sure why. And instead, we let guys like Simon McGinley. I mean, clearly, still a danger. It, it, it's hard to imagine that he is a reformed character, um, having carried out these two most horrific attacks and walking from jail the way he has. Um, you know, it's hard to believe in this country that we are allowing that happen and we're standing by and nobody is trying to <clears throat> to bring that in, at the very least, as a deterrent for, for more attacks. What, what, in your opinion, is McGinley going to do? Is he going to start knocking on doors looking to do landscape gardening? Is he going to stay in this country or, um, you know, is he going to be hounded out of it? I, I think I think he is worried about his own personal safety, Um he does have connections, you know, in the UK, in in the north of Ireland as well. So, I mean, it's it's quite likely he, he'd certainly have the ability to move between the countries. You know, the, the family resources would be there. What's, what's he going to do? I don't know, um, to be honest with you. Um, I, I don't think he was particularly... Um, like the, if you if you read over the, the court cases, there was none of this uh, part of the mitigation that he's been hardworking and, and, you know, works at this or that. There was no mention of that. Um, I, I, you know, it's, 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 I can't see him, um, you know, you know, picking up his life in any normal way, because I think it's quite like he is pretty much a marked man. I think within, you know, within the community, he's, he's pretty much a marked man, um, that, that there has been, there have been threats made, I believe, um, as well. So he is, you know, he is looking over his shoulders to, su- to some extent. So whatever kind of life he picks up, there is going to be an element of him looking over his shoulder at a lot of the time. In a way, he might have been nearly safer staying in prison and during his time in prison. I suppose, finally, how did he get on in prison? Did he show aggression or was he one of these, as we call them, model prisoners? He was very much one of these model prisoners. And, and that's why he was in Arbor Hill. I mean, if he was if he was one of these guys who was causing trouble or, or, or putting it up to other prisoners or staff, like he wouldn't, he just wouldn't be in Arbor Hill. And that's that. I mean, it's very much a place where I, I think I was saying at the start of the podcast there, it's it's for the settled kind of characters, the people that are, are predictable, that aren't going to do anything wild. I think he enjoyed making um, little wooden caravans, which he was selling off for 90 euro, 100 euro ago. Um, you know, there's different, you, you know, there's plenty of, of kind of, um, 
you know, work or training, you know, available to prisoners in, in Arbor Hill and, and he availed of that. So but he'll continue that as well on his on the on the outside. Remains to be seen. Well, Eamon Dillon, thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from Sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.